Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's Daily Politics Podcast. I'm Isabel Hardman and this is the Sunday Roundup. As the conflict in Gaza continues, there is increasing division over the crisis here in the UK. Keir Starmer continues to resist the call of many of his party who advocate for a ceasefire. Home Secretary Suella Braverman has labelled pro-Palestine rallies as hate marches and Jewish columnist Lord Finkelstein told Trevor Phillips he wonders whether it's safe for him or his children in central London. Deputy Prime Minister Oliver Dowden partially agreed with Braverman, telling Laura Koonsberg there was hateful conduct occurring on the marches. He suggested the pro-Palestine rally planned for Armistice Day should not go ahead. Closer to home, of course, we've seen tens of thousands of people express their concern about what's going on with pro-Palestinian rallies. Now, your colleague, the Home Secretary, said that these marches are hate marches. Is she right? Yes, I think there is hateful conduct in those marches, and I see that from my uh, own constituents. That The hurt that is caused when people stand there chanting from the river to the sea, which is clearly denying the state of Israel, or jihad, jihad. And I think what the other people attending those marches need to ask themselves is, are they inadvertently standing alongside those people that are preaching hate? And I think when you look forward to next weekend, when it's Armistice Armistice Sunday... I have grave concerns about a march taking place on that day for two reasons. First, this is a moment when the nation is supposed to come together in remembrance of our fallen. I don't think it's appropriate to have uh, marches in that context. And secondly, and of course the police are operationally independent and they need to make the decision on this, I do have worries about, in that context, the level of violence and instability we may see with those marches. to be clear about what you are saying, as it stands, there there are rallies planned for Saturday, which is Armistice Day, and then, of course, the Remembrance Day Sunday services. Are you saying those marches should not happen? Well... It's operationally a matter for the the police. But what I would say is that I do have grave concerns. I have grave concerns about, on that day of national remembrance, the signal that that sends, the intimidation that the Jewish people feel right now in this country. And by the way, we shouldn't view this as Jewish people. We should view this as British society. These kind of things, where you have that uh, chants like jihad, they're an affront not just the Jewish community, they should be an affront to all of British society and I think all of us should be calling out that sort of thing and I think the people who are on those marches need to ask themselves whether they are lending support to that sort of thing. Speaking to Trevor Phillips, the Shadow Defence Secretary John Healy defended Starmer not calling for a ceasefire, arguing that a ceasefire leaves Hamas fighters and weapon systems in place and would therefore prolong the conflict. However, he stressed that humanitarian pauses were necessary to allow aid to get into Gaza and negotiate the release of hostages. Phillips asked him if that meant in practice Israel would have to stop fighting while Hamas carried on. Healy argued that small steps might lead to a breakthrough. Yes, a ceasefire, and this was Keir's argument in the week that you talked about, that uh, a ceasefire freezes a conflict. In this case, it would leave Hamas fighters, weapon systems, command centres in place, and it would leave them in place and able to mount similar terror attacks that we saw on October the 7th. And his argument is also that for the aims that we all want to achieve, which is a reduction in civilian casualties, more aid getting into Gaza, the chance for hostages to come out, and more space to see further diplomacy, It's humanitarian pauses or a break in fighting, breaks in fighting, that are most likely to be, as Martin Griffiths, the UNA chief, has said, the most viable option. And I think we must all 
welcome the indication from the Israeli Defense Force today that there may be a four-hour break in fighting, a humanitarian pause, if you like, to move, allow people to move more safely south and away from the main part of fighting in Gaza. So, so the essential difference between the humanitarian pause and the ceasefire is that the humanitarian pause is one-sided, that uh, it's basically what the Israelis do, but Hamas doesn't have to observe it. No, it's a break, it's a break in fighting that allows some of the things that we all want to see, especially the alleviation of Palestinian suffering, to take place. And uh, in the end, what matters is what stands the best chance of working. And in a conflict like this, small steps can lead to bigger breakthroughs. So that's why Keir Starmer has been arguing for humanitarian pauses. Keir Starmer is not a protest leader. He understands why people are calling for a ceasefire, but he believes that for those two reasons, for now, that is not the right approach. The COVID inquiry is shedding further light on the toxic and chaotic environment of the government during the beginning of the pandemic, with Dominic Cummings and Helen McNamara giving testimony this week. It's clear preparations were catastrophically inadequate and the government's response far too slow. Dowden admitted to Koonsberg that the government's preparations had an excessive focus on a flu-style pandemic, but said he would not give a running commentary on the ongoing inquiry. But it sounds that you're rather trying to bamboozle our viewers this morning with a very technical explanation of the fact that you didn't read every single part of the pandemic preparedness plans. I can, I'm not trying to bamboozle your uh, viewers, and I can say to you categorically that I, as I gave evidence under oath to the inquiry that I read all relevant parts of the COVID plan, but it has to be viewed, the only point I'm making to you is it has to be viewed in the context that the Department of Health were the lead department mm -hmm. ready for pandemic preparedness. Did you think that the plans you had read were good enough? Uh, yes, I th I th in broad terms, I think that uh, we were, we had the right plans in place. I think some errors were made and I, I, I made those clear to the uh, inquiry. First of all, uh, I think we had a, an excessive focus on uh, flu pandemic preparedness. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't really the case that a COVID was taken, uh, was, was something that was uh, as high up as register as perhaps it should have been. But that was because the most likely scenario was a flu style uh, pandemic. So there, and I'm happy to go through again. I'm just sorry, I, I gave over three hours of evidence, so it, and, and I'm trying to distill this and into I'm sure a few our, our viewers don't, don't would like clear answers. Can you give me a clear yes or no answer on this other important piece of evidence that was given this week? The civil service head of the Department for Health, Chris Wormald, told the inquiry this week, with hindsight, the first lockdown was a week too late. Yes or no, is he right? I'm, I'm simply not going to give running commentary on the inquiry that's going it's to get to the bottom of... No, it is, it is, because question. I think in, anyway, fa no, I think in fairness to the, the victims and in fairness to making sure this is done the proper way, I gave my evidence, mm -hmm. they've given their evidence, more people will give their evidence and then the inquiry will conclude. OK, well, plenty of people giving evidence have given strong views this week, but I appreciate that you're not willing to do As that this I, morning. So, let's, so let's move on. Inquiry, let's Laura. move on. We have... The Arab League Assistant Secretary General Hossam Zaki argued that a political solution was the only way to end the conflict. Laura Koonsberg asked him how Israel could talk to Hamas after their actions on October the 7th. Zaki argued that indefensible actions have been committed on both sides, but that Israel is an occupying power and if the conflict is spoken about only as a security problem, no progress could be made. 
You repeat, though, your call there for a political solution, but do you really expect Israel at this stage, given what happened on October the 7th, to be able to say they would talk to Hamas, they would talk to people they see as terrorists, a group that other governments like the UK and the US see very clearly as a terror group who carried out all sorts of hideous acts on October the 7th? Before signing the Oslo Accords, the PLO was identified as a terrorist group by the West, uh, by the United States, by Israel. And then uh, suddenly peace was done with the PLO. Peace was uh, possible. Um, we're looking at the political horizon. We're looking at a political exit of such an intricate uh, problem. Uh, the occupation has plagued the Palestinian existence for more than half a century. We need to put an end to that. This is the only way to put an end to violence, to put an end to violence and counter-violence. This cycle of violence needs to stop. The name, uh, the, the adjective of terrorism, has always been designated to the Palestinians, the Palestinian resistance, actually. Um, some of this resistance uh, are uh, uh, acts that are uh, simply undefensible and really uh, very, very difficult to, uh, to defend. It's true, uh, but also uh, most of what the Israelis are doing, uh, not only in Gaza now, but uh, look at what is happening in the West Bank. Some of the practices they have been doing are Abu Ghraib-like uh, uh, practices. This is unacceptable. And this is all under the guise of what? Self-defense, uh, an occupation that is trying to defend itself against the people that it uh, oppresses. If all of the international community with the United States that has so much power, that has such a very uh, distinguished relationship with Israel, if we all put our hands together, uh, then we can get somewhere. But if we all uh, uh, continue to talk in terms of uh, let us address this as a security problem and a security problem only, we're not going to get anywhere. We will have another one in one year, two years time, three years time. This, the problem will continue to exist. Lastly, Laura Koonsberg asked the succession star Sarah Snook about the ongoing writer strikes in the entertainment industry. But Snook said her biggest fear was with AI. She argued the industry needed to set a precedent with stringent regulations to protect against things like deep fakes. Snook is concerned about the possibility of a company owning a celebrity's image and voice and using them to create potentially harmful content. That's all for this week. I'm Isabel Hardman and this podcast was produced by Joe Bidell Brill. Don't forget to subscribe to the Coffee House Shots podcast on the iTunes store. And if you enjoyed this podcast, do subscribe to our daily Evening Blend email. It's a free roundup of all the political news each day, along with analysis and a diary on what to expect next. Just go to spectator.co.uk forward slash blend. Thanks for listening and do join us again next week.